listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. I'm continuing this series that doesn't have a name. Um, And if you haven't been here for the last few weeks, I really encourage you to podcast the last month or so. Uh, this is a message that I'm going to give you that does not stand alone. It very much stands on the back of what Mark uh, talked about last week around seeds and gardens. Um, before that, when I spoke about the, the two halves of life that we go through and Jesus' central teaching that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it will not produce a harvest. And this pastoral mystery that is not just in the created order but is in our life rhythm of how the gardener works with us is that he gets things to die so that he can speak resurrection and renewal into those places that were first started by the natural order of man but he wants to continue through the life-giving power of his spirit. Um, Please go back listen to that. Mark talked about David and Saul, a fascinating um, message of which, of course, if you read Samuel, you realise there's also an Absalom, so I'm just going to chuck that into the mix. Uh, If you haven't read Samuel recently, I encourage you to go back and read Samuel. And prior to that, we did that thing on humility. How's everyone going with that? That is, yeah, one of the most challenging messages I've put together, and the thing that was challenging about that is just a little trade secret. Sometimes God gets you to write a message he wants you to learn. And so I continue to walk that journey out, but I guess what has struck me the most is that, you know, the whole point to your discipleship, it's got nothing to do with what you do or that that becomes the fruit of it. The the point to your relationship with Jesus is humility, where you become the creature and he becomes the creator just as it was always intended at the beginning of time, pre-us eating, attempting fruit. And that everything he's on about in your life right now is to bring you to that space where you're on your knees in a yielded submission to that God and King, um, that it's our natural state but does not come naturally as pride seeps in 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 all sorts of different shapes and sizes, extroverted or introverted. It's a human condition. So today, as I speak, um, this is the only message you've heard. Please go back and listen because it it dovetails into those spaces. Uh, Last week, um, Mark started to continue that theme of seeds that seems to be weaving itself as God does a preparation work in us. And he spoke around the beauty of gardens, um, that seeds aren't meant to be a seed, they're meant to be, there's about the tree that's in the seed. We looked at that um, in a little bit of detail and I guess what I, I marvel about is I am one of those people that loves gardens. Hands up if you love gardens. Hands up if you can explain why you love gardens. I can't explain it, it's a matter of soul. As Annie Dillard says, the present always looks different when you sit under a tree. Why is it births, deaths, weddings, sickness, we give flowers? It reminds our soul of Eden. It reminds our soul of that home that we're homesick for, but we've never really been, but maybe our souls have. And so gardens are this beautiful echo of an intangible God that shows us the visible qualities of his creation and his heart for his creation and his people. Last week, Mark, actually, and I want to talk about it a little bit more because I'm not sure if people grasped this. Mark spoke about Latrobe. Hands up if you remember this weird thing about Latrobe. I feel like he skittered past it and I'm like, that's huge. Latrobe, one of our chancellors. 
one of our founding fathers of this city, it comes to Melbourne from Britain as a Moravian, part of renewal, part of revival, seeds spoken into his life. He comes to Victoria, comes to Melbourne. Victoria is the wealthiest of British colonies because of the gold rush. Thanks, Ballarat. I'm from Ballarat. Um, and he had this incredible influence on our city. The culture and civilization that Melbourne is known for today and considered, you know, the world's most livable city for many years running, no longer, interesting, no longer, is due to Latrobe. The garden state that Victoria is famously known for traced back to his vision. He insisted on the provision of parklands and personally supported them happening out of his own pocket. He said his best civilizations are based on sound religious and moral values and it will always be expressed in a culture where arts and science, arts and science flourish. In the evening service, uh, this is a picture of our botanical garden, by the way. This is our city, the garden state. And in the evening service last week, there was a word about this. Hands up if you remember these number plates. Hands up, hands up if you were born before 1994. <laughs> these, um, these number plates, I grew up with this number plate, BXS462, Ford Falcon XD, Dad's yellow lemon thing. And um, it's... In the second half, first half of life we spoke about, this has marked me in my first half of life. The Victoria is the garden state. Since then, 1994, Jeff Kennett, thanks Jeff, decided to call us Victoria on the move. Hands up if you've had that number plate. A couple of people. Then uh, we had the place to be, Victoria the place to be. Then stay alert, stay alive. <laughs> and now we've got the education state. We've gone from the garden state to the education state. We've gone from a place of organic flourishing and <coughs> seeds dying and multiplying to now a place of intellect and knowledge. And I couldn't help but drag the metaphor a bit deeper and go, yeah, the, the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is the tree that we as a state are eating out of at the moment? What is the tree that you are eating out of? And sure, we might just go, it's just a number plate. Does it really matter? Would a rose named by any other name still smell as sweet? In thinking about this, I was reminded of an article that was in the Age paper <laughs> 10 years ago. On a Saturday afternoon when I would grab a cup of tea and I would go through that big sheet and I would read things in a way that I don't read anymore. There was an article in there by Loonig, our prophet, who lives in North Fitzroy. And he wrote about a lemon tree. <coughs> And this lemon tree was in a, um, a pot that was on wheels that was brought out as part of the decorative space of a cafe around the corner from where he lived. And every morning he would go for a walk uh, with his dog and the timing coincided with the setup of this cafe for the day for the, the busy coffee Melbourne rush. And he would talk about the lemon tree that was on wheels and would be dragged out day after day. And day after day the lemon tree would come out. After a couple of months he noticed that the lemon tree was dying. But it kept being dragged out and dragged out. There'd be some, you know, some cigarette butts in it and kept being brought out. Until he noticed that the lemon tree was actually dead. But they were still bringing out the lemon tree. 
He uses a metaphor for Melbourne where he goes, the coffee is great, but the lemon tree is dead. And we're not even noticing. We don't even notice. He says that we may know a culture not only by the great things it upholds, but also by the small poignancies it neglects or cannot see. And time and time again in the article, he goes, the coffee is good, but the lemon tree is dead. And in the true beautiful style that only Looney can do, he continues on and he says, sometimes I wonder if the semi-conscious agenda of media is to get between people and their soul. It is the soul with its myriad tiny nerve endings that notices the neglected pathos, poignancy and practicality that lies at the heart of life. It's as if the media are somehow irritated and envious that anonymous people should have the quiet brilliance of their rich and sustainable inner lives. This is 10 years ago that he wrote this. The coffee is great, but the lemon tree is dead. And he goes on to say, and he talks about how words and words have lost their meaning, which is my, my big passion. He says, yet sometimes the right word is all you need to save the day. With it you may germinate many seeds. How good of him to be on script. <laughs> like, yes, learning. Such a word can be the perfect gift. That we live in this world where the conversation, the plural, are endless that you are pulled and you are tabbed from every side, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, or over the dinner table, whether it be what you're reading or what you're not reading. It's just this inundation of words. You're exposed to over 13,000 marketing and media messages per day. If you were to read one week's worth of the New York Times this week, you'd be exposed to more information than you would be in a lifetime if you grew up in the 17th century. Words make the, the ceiling, the walls, the foundation of the world in which we live, and yet none of them seem to bring peace or life. And the more we're inundated with it, the more they lose their meaning. And the more we're inundated with it, the more anxious we become. And the less we feel the stillness and the peace and the deep rootedness that we're actually designed and called to live in. This is what Lunig is getting at. The coffee is great, but the lemon tree is dead. But he says, sometimes you just need a word. And the right word spoken at the right time can bring rivers of healing and rivers of life. Hands up if you've ever had that happen. Someone has just mentioned the right thing at the right time and it's been a game changer. Seems to be few and far between these days, but it still happens. So as I was reflecting on this message and, and where I felt God was taking us, um, I couldn't help but come to John 1. It says this. In the beginning was the, capital W, word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Hands up if you've had this passage before. It's the beginning of John, one of the four Gospels. Uh, John happens to be my favourite Gospel. Not sure what's yours, but I invite you to get one. I remember being 11 and uh, going forward for an altar call for the sixth time because I just, every time there was an altar call, I was just going forward. And I was given the Gospel of John and I decided to memorise John and I got stuck here. <laughs> Such a mysterious, cryptic passage, but it's beautiful. 
It's a bit like a garden. You can't explain why it's beautiful and poignant, but it just is. It is poetry that in the beginning, before anything else, was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. What is incredible about this passage is when you look into the, um, the original text, one of the translations is that in the beginning was the word that it's a process, that that word is continuing, that the word that spoke light into the darkness continues to create that space, scientists have discovered, hasn't stopped growing. It continues to grow since light came into the darkness. That, that word is continuing today, that that light is ongoing, that it's always going into the darkness, that Christ has always and continues to seek to reveal himself and he comes as light. In Romans 1, this is either literal light, he's the light of the world, but Romans 1 talks us about how it's nature and conscience. That light is at work in your soul at the moment through nature and conscience. There is no place with the slightest crack that can withhold his presence. No matter how dark it is, light dispels darkness. It's a scientific fact. It's a metaphoric fact. It's a life fact. It's a spiritual fact. And so we see that Christ is continually bombarding every corner of our hearts throughout the work of the Holy Spirit, in nature, in conscience, in scriptures. So the question I have for you this morning is, where is his light shining for you now? Where is it that he's wanting to cut through? The passage in John 1 goes on, and it says that in 10 and 11, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to be his own, he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. And we see this devastating reality that the light is met with tremendous resistance to the point of it being rejected, to the point of Jesus being the light of the world, actually killed and crucified. By the very darkness, he came to actually shed his light on. As I was reflecting on this, and I was reflecting on you've got the tree of life, you've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That every time we go to invest in the light more, it's like the darkness just keeps coming and overshadows and draws us back. And that without us even wanting to, without us even trying, our natural human default, particularly in the first half of life, particularly when we're holding a seed tightly, expecting it to deliver what our life wants it to be, we all too easily become conspirators with the darkness without even realising it. That I realise every time I operate out of pride, I'm actually eating out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that every time I operate out of pride, I'm actually expanding the kingdom of darkness. That this is no, <laughs> this is no um, Lord of the Rings fantasy. This is the very narrative that we live in right now, that the word is desperate to speak light into. And so, of course, and in true red form, you'll hear this word a lot. This is secularism, that word we bandy around. That Thomas Merton says that secularism is a way of being dependent on the responses of the culture around you. 
And when you and I fall into the default of the culture around us, we are actually being conspirators with darkness without even knowing that's what's happening. He goes on to say the secular self is the false self which is fabricated by these social compulsions. The coffee is great, but no one notices the lemon tree is dying. Now, this is not new. We've talked about it many times. Throughout history, there's been times of incredible renewal and a flourishing garden right down to wilderness and desert and complete barrenness, then to up again and down again and up again and down again. At the bottom of one of those troughs, in around the 2nd to 3rd century AD, when persecution had stopped over the Christians, where people were killed for their faith and tangibly suffered for their faith, all of a sudden it became okay. Again, it became safe. But there was a group of people who uh, struggled with that going, we're now just falling into the responses of culture. So in the third century AD, after persecution had stopped, things became normal again. A hunger developed in a group of people where they were like, we don't want to be like the world. We actually want to be connected to the light, not to the darkness. And so you may have heard of it before, but this is when the desert fathers and mothers sort of came into being. Kind of took off in the second, third century to about the fifth century. St. Anthony was the first one to kind of kick it off. And it was so popular that there ended up being what was called a city in the desert. A group of people that were desperate to actually live by the light and a living word that was ongoing and continually creating and speaking purpose and giving um, water into parched places. That it got so popular that people were gravitating to the literal desert to actually engage with this wellspring of life. The Desert Fathers, you struggle to find a Google image. They always look like this. And whenever I see an image like this, some kind of iconography, I kind of get bored and switch off because I don't relate to that. I've come from a Western tradition of faith, not an Eastern tradition of faith. I'm not used to growing up with that. But for some reason, this marks the era that they were in and it actually tells a story of going to lonely, desolate, isolated places with the one intent of wanting to be active witnesses against the destructive power of evil and for the saving power of Jesus Christ. And this city in the desert, the Desert Fathers and there were mothers as well, was such a major influence that it developed the spread of Christianity from the third century onwards. And the revivals that we talk about whether it be the Wesleyan Revival or the Great Awakening, if you trace them all the way back, find their seeds in the practices of the Desert Fathers. People who made an active stand going, I'm not going to actually be a conspirator with the natural cultural milo of my day without even knowing it, where the coffee's great. I'm going to step out and I'm actually going to have practices that show that I'm different to the world around me. Prior to that, persecution was the litmus test. Persecution is always this sieve of how much do you really believe what you say? This became the next litmus test. And so I reckon we're not at the end of persecution and therefore needing to find our way again. I cannot help but wonder if we're heading towards persecution. In fact, I know we are. The persecuted church now realises that they're our cousins and they actually need to teach us how to be ready for 
persecution. So instead of the West going over to those other countries that we consider other countries to help them, they're now coming to us to educate and train us on what it means to actually live in the light and be in the light, not conspirators with darkness. And so could it be the Holy Spirit is actually going, okay, where it went persecution then to practices, I now need to get my people ready, armed and prepared now for persecution the other way around. Don't know, I'm just posing the concept. If you don't like it, you can go get coffee at cafes down the road because the, co the coffee's great, but the lemon trees are dead. Okay. So what I want to do today is I want to give you the top three practices of the Desert Fathers. And my aim in doing this is this is not a religious, oh, now I've got to do this again. Now I've got more to do and I'm already feeling like it's a religious striving thing. This is so, so far from it. But the spirit behind this is that these are the practices that put your soul and heart in line and in alignment so that you can receive the fullness of the light, that the word that is continually creating can continually wash over you, can continue to breathe over you, and there is absolutely no obligation whatsoever. That this is the beauty of the kingdom. There is no obligation, there is no duty, there is no responsibility. This is just that tap on the shoulder where the Holy Spirit is at his banqueting table and he's like, do you want to come have dinner with me? This is the heart behind what we're going to go into. Now, I feel a bit sheepish doing this because you've all heard of these things. But I'm just reminding you what you already know. And maybe, just maybe, this is the right word for the right season for what it is the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life. So the first one is solitude. I love solitude. I didn't used to. I'm an extrovert by nature, and so solitude was very difficult. For me, when I thought of the word solitude, and a lot of people, when they think of this word, they think of loneliness, being alone. Loneliness is a horrible feeling. Loneliness isn't just a sadness. Loneliness is really difficult because you can feel it physically. I don't know what you feel. I feel it in my sternum, this really deep ache this absence of something that you're meant to be connected to that you're not. Every one of us, to be human is to be lonely. It could have been for you. I don't know when your season of loneliness was or if still is, whether it was in primary school, being bullied at high school, or being at uni and trying to connect and fit in but not really engaging, whether it be here at church. What has been your story of loneliness? When have you felt that and what has that felt like for you? I think possibly the hardest loneliness is when you're surrounded by people but still lonely. There's a social phenomenon where that's increasingly the case, that we are more connected than ever before but actually more lonely than ever before. Where social gatherings and having coffee at the cafe is leaving more and more people actually in a place of bereftness than in a place of communion and connection and knownness. To me, that's the hardest loneliness. Surrounded by people, but riddled with loneliness. Henry Nguyen, uh, in his book, and if you feel solitude is your thing, that is the right word for the hour, I'm going to recommend this book, Reaching Out. It is at the bookstore. don't know if there's copies left, but you can get it at any online store. Henry Nguyen, who's the master of this stuff, actually says that loneliness, the beauty and the imitation in loneliness, is to turn your loneliness into solitude. And where the social milieu and the temptation is to run away from our loneliness and avoid it at all costs. He actually says for those who have got the courage 
to take that step into loneliness because it's the furnace of transformation. There is a reason why loneliness is bringing itself up. And the creator God who spoke the world into being wants to speak to that place. He wants to speak life to that place. He wants to speak healing to that place. And he wants to renew that space within you. But when you're our default, our cultural default is to run away from loneliness at all costs, we're actually running away from the very garden the Lord is wanting to sow. I'm not going to pretend this is an easy word. It's tough. It's really hard to actually explore your loneliness. It is really hard to be confronted with the questions of why am I lonely? What is loneliness a symptom of? But as Henry Nguyen says, as hard as it is to believe that a dry, desolate desert yields endless varieties of flowers, loneliness is hiding an unknown beauty. About seven years ago, I was experiencing such an intense loneliness, I got sick. That's how directly related loneliness is to our physical being. And I remember crying out to God, going, God, you have to take this loneliness away because if you don't... And it wasn't a single loneliness. It wasn't that one. It was a different one. Um, This is going to kill me. (laughs) And he forced me to go on a journey of exploring why I'm lonely, that in going through, I now love solitude. And I crave it. And it's not a solitude that feeds the introverted indulgence. It's a solitude where you actually get to come into the presence of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and have direct communion with them and they get to give you their presence and speak a life-giving word into your situation. It is rich. It is deep. Instead of painful, it is wonderful. And instead of meaningless, It is full and laden with meaning. Henry Nguyen goes on to say that to live a spiritual life, we must first find the courage to enter into the desert of our loneliness and to change it by gentle and persistent efforts into a garden of solitude. Henry also got the memo about seeds and gardens. But let's not let what he's saying wash over us. That in the very thing you're trying to run away from right now, the Holy Spirit is saying, no, 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 come. Come here, come here. I've got a garden to create. I've got seeds to fertilise. I've got something flourishing I can give you. And this is a space where the desert is so dry that a few drops of water aren't going to cut it anymore. The desert is so dry in our culture that a few drops of water are no longer going to cut it. We need to find a living well and reach deep down under the surface of our complaint. What is it that's bothering you at the moment? Why is it bothering you? Why is it nagging you like an annoying mosquito bite that just will not go away? Could it be that your answer is to run into it and not to run away from it? And if so, what would that look like? This is solitude. So solitude is not... All the introverts out there, are you ready? It's not a time and place where you don't have to be bothered by other people. Solitude is not the station to recharge your batteries or oil old wounds. Solitude is not an indulgence, although it can become that by fruit. Solitude is the place of your conversion. It is a place where your old self 
the first half of life dies, unless a grain of wheat dies, and the new self is born. That that new life, the resurrection life that God has got for you, that you were always created in the image of before the creation of the world, is brought to life through solitude. Because you end up becoming and mirroring the people you hang out with. And so if you're constantly socialising or you're constantly busy, whatever your season of life is, it would be very different for the PM crowd tonight. But you start to mirror and echo whoever you're hanging around. But if you carve out time, and it's quality here, not quantity, although quantity is pretty important, you actually start to mirror the God of whose image you were made. And he has to breathe the life that he breathed, there you go, (laughs) that he breathed into Adam, that he breathed into Adam, that life-giving spirit over you, and he says, "Come, come to life. And so in solitude... You pay attention to your inner self, the fears, the lies, the accusations, the hurts, the shames that are screaming, which any natural human being wants to run away from. But someone who's in pursuit of God goes, I'm in pursuit of you in the places that hurt. Because God knows when we run away from them, we actually don't become who we're called to be, we become a false self. And then we fight ardently and persistently to protect that false self, even if, and worst of all, even if it has a Christian veneer over it. This is Song of Songs, chapter 3 in the Passion Version, where the bride says, I'm going back to the temple within where I was given new birth and into my innermost parts, the place of my conceiving, that you get to go back to that conceiving where the Holy Spirit spoke you into being with a purpose and a plan and a life and an identity that you don't have to achieve. You do not have to achieve. It is given to you and you get to receive. Thomas Merton, oh sorry, Henry Nguyen, same, same. With our solitude of heart, our relationships with others easily become needy and greedy. Why? Because we're expecting other people to satisfy the wound and the hurt and the desire within Sticky and clingy, dependent and sentimental, exploitative and parasitic. Because without the solitude of heart, we cannot experience the others as different from ourselves, but only as people who can be used for the fulfilment of our own often (coughs) hidden needs. For the sake of time, I'm going to keep going. What Henry Nguyen is saying is so much of our socialisation isn't actually about the other, it's about the self. And as long as we look to the other to satisfy the deep inner needs within, we will constantly be left lonely, disappointed, unknown, unheard. And we damage others because we expect them to be God. We expect others to heal what only God can heal. So a few things to know about solitude. This is a place of holiness. I have read before that situation where Henry Nguyen sat with a student and I sat in silence. And it was holy and it was beautiful. And Henry Nguyen's solitude met his student solitude. And after 10 minutes of just not awkward silence, meaningful silence, the student says to him, when I look at you, I see Jesus. The Jesus in me is seeing the Jesus in you. And now wherever we go, whenever we are apart, we'll be joined by this connection. That's not loneliness. That is depth. That is connectedness. That is a Jesus who is so different to each of us and yet decides to bring us all together because we're bound by him. But the minute we look to others 
to be that Jesus, that's when things go codependent and astray and people, as idols always do, end up disappointing us. It's creative. What? You know, the enemy's aim is to rob the image of God in your life. And the image of God that is in your life is first and foremost creative because he's a creator God. And that is why creativity is now at a loss. When was the last time you went to a, a piece of architecture that just blew your head away? Instead, we've got homogenised houses that all look the same. Creativity has been lost. It's been packaged. It's been consumed. What happens when we engage with the creator in the depths of our being is that our fearful reactions turn into loving responses. Instead of becoming passive victims of a world asking for our idolatrous attention, we become agents of love and creativity. We see things with the eyes of the creator and we speak his heart and his life into situations. And our words, instead of being meaningless, our words become meaningful and spark life into others. And finally, solitude, true solitude, not indulgent time away from people, but solitude always brings compassion for others. You can tell how well you're doing at solitude by the degree in which you're having a compassionate response to others or a judgmental response. Why would that be? When you engage in solitude, you cannot help but be confronted with your own brokenness. And being confronted with your own brokenness the wonderful counsellor comes and meets and speaks to those spaces. And when you are hit with that grace that speaks intimately, speaks personally, speaks meaning and purpose back into you, you cannot help but drop your buckets and run back to people and say, let me tell you about the man who just told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? You cannot help but want to have compassion for other people's brokenness instead of judgement. For other people's brokenness. Why? Because you've been softened by the grace of this God yourself. This is the same as humility. You don't get humility by trying harder, being humble. You get humble by being overwhelmed with a grace that you don't deserve. In solitude, you get to hit that grace and it gets to wash over you and rebuild you and then you cannot help but want to shower that grace and kindness to others. So, this is your project it's really simple and yet really hard. Set a time and a place to be with God and God alone. But I'm busy, you don't understand. How much of your busyness is coming out of a centred self? And how much of your busyness is coming out of a need to satiate and run away from things? But I'm a mother, you wouldn't know you're single and childless. True. <laughs> but just as you can encourage me to be more industrious, I can encourage you to come to this garden within. There are 168 hours in a week. I guarantee there is an hour this week in everybody's life that can be taken for intentional space. To come to the garden within, the temple within, the place of your conceiving, your conceiving, the place of God's delight. Second one. Are you ready? Are you nervous? 
Are you loving this message or hating it? Silence. Dallas Willard says, solitude and silence are the hardest disciplines to practice. <laughs> we hate silence. We do not like silence. Studies actually show that the average person can only handle 15 seconds of silence. By silence, I mean no stimuli. So it's not being alone. Solitude is being alone with God. Silence is no outward noise. I'm not good at this one. Doesn't come naturally, it doesn't come easily, but we know that God's invitation to us is be still and know I am God. That we actually only know He's God through stillness and through silence, where He's the Creator and we're the creature. Psalm 37 Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. One of the desert fathers said, if someone is not edified by my silence, he will not be edified by my speech. And so silence is the quietening of every inner and outer voice to listen for God's sheer silence. If when you practice silence, I'm not assuming you have before, but if you do, and you end up going, but I don't hear anything, you're not meant to. This is a practice that engages with God's sheer silence. But your silence gets to commune with his silence. And you know what's awesome, truly awesome about that? So when God spoke the world into being, it came out of silence. The word of God is born out of the eternal silence of God and it is to be this word and it is to this word out of silence that we want to be witnesses. What if that same creator God that spoke light into darkness is hovering over the chaos, just like the chaos of the waters, and he is hovering over to speak new things and speak new life and create things through you? It is going to come and it is going to be born out of a posture and a heart of silence. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. His words hold weight. God wants to speak. God has seeds that he wants to deposit into your heart that then multiply outwards to a harvest in your love and compassion for the world around you. And silence gives space for that Word to be spoken. Silence gives strength and fruitfulness to the word. Silence is the home of the word. The Desert Fathers would say, the word is the instrument of the present world and silence is the mystery of the future world. The future, your future, comes out of silence and stillness. Not a hurried and chaotic mind from the past. Stillness. Where the created order is paused with pregnancy and anticipation. What's the word going to be? God has a word for you. God has a word for you. For now. It's going to come out of stillness and silence. It's the first step into the future. 
It stokes the inner fire that he planted in you many, many years ago for a lot of you. That fire that you might feel has been forgotten, that fire that was blazing hot when you were zealous and 18, that fire that rekindled in the 20s but kind of is snuffed out because of the chaos and just the everyday of life, that fire is still within you because the light is coming to the darkness and the silence actually gives oxygen and air for that word and for that fire to breathe. And ironically, silence teaches us how to speak. How often do our conversations come out of our own loneliness, our own need? How often have you left a catch-up and gone, I'm just so sick of small talk? How often has a conversation really been person A truly listening to person B and person B truly listening to person A? More often, whilst we're listening, we're thinking of what our response is going to be. Few people really know how to listen. Very few people know how to really listen to what is going on. Silence and the practice of silence teaches us then how to converse and how to speak. I read a quote once, I don't even know where it was from, but it struck me and it said that life is the story of the lost conversation. Life is the story of the lost conversation, the conversation that could have happened, the conversation that was meant to happen, the conversation of the living word wanting to wash over you and speak to you. So, project number two, and you get to choose one, by the way, so don't feel like you've got to do all three. Jesus isn't bossy, but I am, so (laughs) pick a project. You're going to write this week's message by doing this project because then you become the witness and you become the messenger to the world. Find an intentional time, an intentional space to be still and listen. There is nothing in me that thinks that's going to be easy. There is everything within me that knows what goes on in our mind when we go still. So know that distraction is completely normal. Know that it takes time to learn things like this. True contemplative state takes two to three years to truly learn these practices. But why not put one step forward? Why not give God that extra intentional time this week? To some of you, it'll be the first time you've actually thought of this. To some of you, you're already practicing it. But the heartbeat behind this is, let's all of us take one extra step forward. What is the garden he wants to create within each of us and then amongst us collectively? What is the garden state he wants to redeem in Melbourne as we actually tap back in to the life source and allow the fruit to be true fruit and not sour fruit? within our city. So the operative word here is intentional. Intentional time, an intentional space to intentionally listen. If you're wanting to hear more about this, The Way of the Heart by Henry Nguyen, another Henry Nguyen book, of course, because he's really good at practices. Okay, lastly. Are you ready? I feel so silly saying this because it's all really... Like, it's Christianity 101, but we forget. Life takes over. Busyness takes over. Okay, are you ready? I don't know if I am, because you're all going to go, oh, are you ready? (laughs) (laughs) What? But that's so boring. Prayer. 
solitude is being alone with God. And silence is not about not speaking, it's about listening to God. Both of those things are actually prayer. Prayer is not, okay, I've got these lists and I've got to pray through it and it's really tiring and exhausting. I've got to pray for this person. I've got to pray for this need. That is so far removed from the Father's heart for prayer, it's not funny. And I wonder if the enemy has had a field day by distorting the concept of prayer so that we don't do it. Prayer is that mystery that instead of us trying to find God and where he is, he's actually already come to us. That there is a temple within you, which is the new creation, where he dwells. And he wants from that space to speak into this here but not yet reality of life, of the kingdom here but not fully yet. And that prayer is a place of communion, not a place of arduous striving and exhaustion and we'll let the intercessors do that. The prayer isn't always sitting in silence and solitude. Prayer can be your life. And the true practice of prayer is when it's so integrated that your life becomes a living prayer. And that is so much more attainable to every person in this room than perhaps we realise. I've just turned 40 and I'm only beginning to understand this. I look back in hindsight and realise that my prayer life has actually been a part of the head. I've got prayer journals and it's me analysing and bringing stuff out of my head, communicating with God and loving those spaces and finding communion in those spaces. But it's found a dead end. Prayer is not about thinking about God. That's an intellectual exercise, which is important, but it's not prayer. Prayer is the space where your head and your heart become one thing and that you start to communicate with God from this place, that same place where loneliness hurts. You start to communicate with God from there. It's being in the presence of God with the mind in the heart. The literal translation when Paul says to pray always or pray without ceasing um, actually means to come and rest. Come back. It's a returning back to that place where you first heard the Father's voice and that voice is still speaking. Come back and return to that place. The Desert Fathers would say that when you pray, you're entering into the heart and entering the heart is actually where you enter the kingdom of God and that the way to God is through the heart and there the Spirit of God dwells and encounter takes place. And I am convinced that God is speaking, the living word is speaking to us more than we realise, partly because of our busyness and our distractedness, but also because we just don't know how to hear his voice. I feel like we need to do a whole series on prayer and I do not have the time because I'm winding to an end. I'm just sending out seeds out there. Which ones are going to take root in your heart? Which ones are your heart ready for? But if you want to learn more, I cannot recommend this book enough. I read it in a night. It was so good and so simple. It takes dense theological rigour but makes it super palatable in a way that you can implement practically right now. And so I'm just going to give you a few things, but please, we've only got three copies available today. I'm saving two for the evening service. We are ordering more. They're coming in drip by drip. They cost $20. There's three at the um, bookshelf. Can the book people please make sure that the AM people don't take two of the copies because we need them for the PM? Can't recommend it highly enough. But I basically want to give you a few things. Prayer doesn't have to be a massive long time. Nurtured by small prayers. God help me. Bless this person. Please be with the world today because I don't know what to do with Hong Kong. 
It's true, right? Who said that? Amen to you about that. Nurture by short prayer. John, because he was a desert father, says that when you pray, do not try to express yourself in fancy words, for often it is the simple, repetitious phrases of a little child that our Father in heaven finds most irresistible. Do not strive for verbosity, lest your mind be distracted from devotion by a search for words. I feel like he wrote this for me. One phrase on the lips of the tax collector was enough to win God's mercy. One humble request made with faith was enough to save the good thief. Just pick a phrase this week. I'll give you one in case you don't know where to start with. God have mercy. And just let that be part of your conscience as you go throughout the day and as you posture yourself. It could be, be still, heart be still, heart be still, heart be still. Just pick a phrase. It doesn't have to be hours in the closet. It's unceasing, as I said. Paul, when he says pray without ceasing, means come to rest. And it's a posture. So it happens as you're going. It becomes a way and a part of life. That these short, repetitious words then find their way into your heart and you find yourself listening more to your heart than your head and more to your heart than the circumstances around you because all of a sudden the Holy Spirit is rewiring your perspective, rewiring your outlook, mobilising your giftings, getting you to see what he's created you to see as you contribute with him in his kingdom and your life becomes a prayer. And finally, it's all-inclusive. What I mean with that is that when you enter with your mind into your heart and you stand in the presence of God, then all of your mind becomes a prayer and the mystery of your own heart, the mystery becomes your own heart being transformed into God's heart. And so when you're there and you don't know what to do with your friend whose loved one is dying of cancer or you don't know what to do with Hong Kong or the issues in the Middle East or what's happening with your neighbour next door, which is a situation for me right now, you actually truly get to give your heart to God's heart, who's the only one that can truly hold it. And that's the inclusive, all-inclusive nature, where your heart becomes his heart, but he's the one carrying it, not you. This is the true, true part of the passage, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me do the heavy lifting for you, but let me do it. And the way we'll do it is when our hearts become one, here we have a life of prayer. So Henry Nguyen again. Through prayer, we can carry in our own heart all human pain and sorrow, all conflicts and agonies, all torture and war, all hunger, loneliness, misery, not because of some great psychological or emotional capacity, but because God's heart has become one with our heart and he is the one holding it. And so to close, I'm going to get you to take a really big, deep breath in. I want to remind you and speak over you, prophesy over you that there is a garden deep within your soul. It is a garden of delight. It is a garden that resembles and directly reflects the Garden of Eden. Pre-curse, pre-fall, pre-hurt, pre-heartbreak, pre-shame, pre-disappointment. And that in choosing to follow him, his work in your life now is to cultivate that garden. And so, Jesus, may we come back to the place of our conceiving, to the temple within.
to the garden and that space of delight. And as you pray, I just, uh, sorry, as you're breathing, I want you to become conscious of your breath as you breathe in and as you breathe out. Don't worry, I'm not going to leave this into meditation, which could be helpful, but I won't. I want you to become conscious of your breath. You do it unconsciously and it keeps you alive. It breathes oxygen in and it dispels carbon dioxide. But the word Yahweh, which is Hebrew for God, for I am, the Jews would not pronounce it because it's so sacred. They wouldn't write it because it's so full of meaning and so what they would do in our equivalent version, they would just write Y-V-W-H. No nouns. Which means if you were to say the word Yahweh based on the transliteration of Y-V-W-H, your tongue would not touch your mouth. In other words, this is what you would say. Your life is already a prayer. Your life already has the breath of God in it. Your first breath is his name. Your last breath is his name. You are already praying. All this is, is aligning our soul, mind, heart and spirit into the alignment of the creator. And so Holy Spirit, I pray. I invite you all to stand as I pray a blessing over you as we come together as your children, so diverse and mixed with different stories and different gardens that you are creating. We gather here because we are united because you're our common father. Holy Spirit, I release you to do ministry amongst your children. At those places, the gardens that you're creating, would you do a weeding work? Would you do a planting work? For those hearts that need to be prepared for new soil, would you do a ploughing work? Would you till up fallow soil that once bore fruit but hasn't borne fruit for a long time? Would you break up the hard places? Would you soften and deepen the other places? And would you please, great gardener, create within us a garden of delight that we declare over this city again, that this city be the garden state, that Victoria be the garden state, that what she was originally designed to be and birthed into being by you would actually be taken back from the clutches of the enemy. The lemon trees would be fertile. The coffee would still be good. But we can see and that we know that you are good and we taste the goodness of the God in the land of the living. In Jesus' powerful name.